I'm excited this morning. We start a new series, and, and a series that I'm very passionate about as we go back to the life of Christ and study one of the Gospels. And ju- just by way of getting our brains going this morning, I want to introduce a couple concepts that, that give us some background, some historical background, some literary background, some thematic background that we can move forward in. But the question I want to start with is what would happen if you went to Taco Bell this afternoon? And I know a lot of you go there because some of them, other people just have to leave because it's only village people. But if you go to Taco Bell and there's, it's filled with people you don't know, and you just get up and start clearing people's tables for them, what would their response be? What are you doing? I'm not finished. Let's, that's great. Let's assume they're finished. <laughs> You're finished, someone comes to your table and says, let me clear that for you, at Taco Bell. Okay, hesitancy? (laughs) Times are tough. Or you go to the grocery store and you're walking out of the grocery store, actually waiting right there at the, the checkout line. Someone that isn't an employee says, you know what, I just, I'd like to help you carry your groceries today. Please don't steal my groceries. We go to all these places because the concept of servanthood is becoming more and more extinct in our culture. The concept of doing something completely for the good of someone else without any hope of getting something in return is a concept that we are are gradually losing as a culture. It used to be that if you were stranded on the side of the road, you could count on a number of cars stopping to help you. And I would, I would venture to say, those of you that are, are visiting from the Midwest or from the Midwest, that probably still happens in the Midwest, doesn't it? Oklahoma, probably. You'd still get a lot of help. And Michael, it's good to see you out with us today. <laughs> Got tired of the snow already. So um, it's good to see you. But we have, we have lost the concept of servanthood to a point now where we are suspicious of people that exercise servanthood. And it's an interesting dilemma we have when we as believers are called to be servants. It'd be interesting if you were in Taco Bell and the governor of California came and asked to clear your table. (laughs) Not getting into political statements. But if a politician did that, what would your first thought be? Is he up for re-election? He wants my vote. And so we start to suspect, especially when someone of authority does something that is far beneath their authority. During the American Revolution, a man in civilian clothes rode past a group of soldiers repairing a small defensive barrier. Their leader was shouting instructions, but making no attempt to help them. Asked why by the writer, he retorted with great dignity, Sir, I am a corporal. The stranger apologized, dismounted, and proceeded to help the exhausted soldiers. The job done, he turned to the corporal and said, Corporal, next time you have a job like this and not enough men to do it, go to your commander-in-chief, and I will come and help you again. (laughs) With that, George Washington got back on his horse and rode off. And we see an incredible mix of authority and servanthood 
a mix that, that we don't see often, and a mix that is, as we go through the Gospel of Mark, I pray we rediscover with a power and with a force as we come to our Lord and Savior and enter in, re-enter into relationship with Him as a Savior with all power and all authority, but, is that, but that is completely a servant. Title for our sermon series as we go through the Gospel of Mark is When God Chose Sandals. A Walk with Our Servant Savior through the Gospel of Mark. And the title is, it represents so many of the themes that we'll encounter in Mark. And as we go through the morning, I want to quickly hit a couple of the words of the title and explain it. Because at first you might say, Ron's lost it. Sandals. I, I, I didn't wear sandals, so that's good. Um, no fire today. That's good. But the, the title captures the essence of the Gospel of Mark and the essence of how we know our Savior through this Gospel. And I pray that as we, we study, it's not about knowing about Jesus, but it's about knowing Jesus and entering into relationship with Him. But to do that this morning, I want to hit just some quick hits on Mark. And we, we can't spend a lot of time on these things. But what's the main point of Mark? And turn with me to Mark chapter 1. And let's start with verse 1. And we'll, we'll hit the first verse and the key verse in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1. Verse 1. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, that's a short verse. We'll talk about that with Mark, because he just jumps into the action from here. This is his introduction. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this introduction, he packs so many things into just a few words. He's, he's beginning to tell us of the story of the good news. And the word for, for gospel there means good news or evangel. And, and it means to, to share news with someone, oftentimes a victory on a battlefield or a king issuing an edict or, or an instruction to his kingdom. So it had an official sense could be a favorable report about a significant event. But the word was always used in a significant proclamation. And so Mark, right at the beginning, says this is a significant proclamation from the King. It's about Jesus Christ. And and like we've talked about as we went through 1 John, the word for Christ there is not Jesus' last name. It's not Jesus, the Son of Christ, or, or anything like that. The word Christ there actually means the Anointed One, or often can be translated Messiah. And it wasn't a name, it was a title. And it was part of what John or Mark here is, is getting across. Jesus, who is the Messiah. Who is the Christ. Who is the Anointed One. And then the very last phrase, the Son of God who is God Himself in human flesh. And from the beginning, we see that Mark is going to talk about Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the One who came to save with the authority of God Almighty. Also turn over to Mark 10.45. Mark 10, verse 45, and 
This is the, the key verse of, of the Gospel of Mark that captures again really everywhere Mark has gone before it and where he goes after this. Mark 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And that verse summarizes everywhere we're going to go in the Gospel of Mark. I put a sentence there that is the the big idea of the whole book, the main point, to proclaim that God Himself came to earth as a servant to pursue sinners and give His life to save those who trust Him. Let me repeat that. I know I have some blanks there. To proclaim that God Himself came to earth as a servant to pursue sinners and give His life to save those who trust Him. When God shows sandals, a walk with our servant Savior, I mentioned that the words were very significant to me. The first word, when. And when we think of the word when, we're referring to an actual event, to a place in history where these events are real, they are genuine, where they actually happened. In our culture today, many will say, well, that's just a group of fairy tales. Those stories, they're just in there to to inspire But as you know from when we talked about Scripture and the inspiration of Scripture and the inerrancy of Scripture, we know that these are actual events. And we know that from outside collaboration as well. Corroboration. But this is a real story of a real man who really came as God to save us. Some quick vitals on Mark that will help us understand what's going on. The Gospel of Mark is often times referred to as the Gospel of Action. The Gospel of Action. And one of the words that you'll see in your, your, your Bible is the word immediately, or now, or this happened next. And it's a word that is used more in Mark than the entire rest of the New Testament. The Greek word for that is uthos, and it means immediately. And, and Mark is using this to, to create a gospel that is sort of quick moving. It would be like if I said, okay, what did you do this weekend? Now, 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 come on, tell me. Okay, that's great. What did you do this weekend? And you tell me, and we go, what did you do this weekend? And, and we're telling a story, and you're getting involved, and, and assuming I let them talk. And, and, and you're hearing it, and that's the tone of Mark. As he's quickly hitting the story, it's the shortest gospel that we have, but it is not a condensed gospel. It's short because Mark chose what material to put in. Oftentimes his accounts have more details than some of the other Gospels. So it's not abbreviated, but it's quick and it's to the point. It's the half-hour sitcom instead of the the two-hour movie because he just wants to get into it. Forty-two times he uses the word immediately. 150 times he uses a tense in the Greek that we call the historical present that he's talking about historical events, but he uses a present tense to do it. And Jesus comes. And Jesus goes. And Jesus heals instead of healed, came, and went. And it's all part of an intentionality 
to keep the reader engrossed in, in what is going on. To bring us in to the real life of Jesus Christ. Mark chooses a, things that are very specific to his goal of showing the servant Savior. And so we don't see a lot of the, the long teachings of Christ in Mark. We see those in Matthew and in Luke. In Mark, we mostly see the action. So, so this is the, the action flick of the Gospels. And, and he moves right through it. But in that action and in what God is doing as Jesus, we find incredible truths as we walk with our Savior. The author of Mark we actually don't know for sure. The, the gospel never says, I, Mark, write this. But early church history, and, and we have no reason to, to question it because the internal evidence in the, the gospel doesn't contradict it. The external evidence doesn't contradict it. But early church history ascribes Mark to John Mark. Do you remember John Mark? Read about him in Acts with the Apostle Paul and Barnabas as he went on one of their missionary journeys with them. But John Mark probably wrote this from Rome and probably with the influence of Peter. The earliest manuscripts we have, the very earliest, actually still have according to Mark at the top. Not as part of the text, but as a title that the early church put on it. And some of the the early church fathers in the first century um, also wrote that Mark wrote this as an interpreter for Peter. And so we have pretty clear indications that it was Mark. One of the interesting things is, if the church was making up someone to write it, you probably wouldn't choose John Mark. You would probably choose an apostle, maybe Peter, since, since he influenced this. And so John Mark wrote this, and, and thinking through John Mark's story is just a, an interesting thing. Last week we read the story of Peter when he got out of jail, and he went to the house where they were praying, the house of Mary. Do you remember this? And who was Mary's son? John Mark. And this is, John Mark was probably a teenager about that time in Acts 12 too. When he realized this being Peter, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And so John Mark had associations with Peter early on, and he, he was part of the church and part of the founding of the church as a young man during those formative years. I mentioned Paul and Barnabas took him on their first missionary journey, but that didn't end so well. Partway through, he deserted them. And later, when it came time to a, a second missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas ended up splitting over this because Barnabas wanted to take John Mark on the next trip with him. John Mark was Barnabas' cousin. And Paul said, no, he is of no value. He's of no value. We, we can't go through that again. And so Paul and Barnabas split ways. And so John Mark's story includes failure. And it includes difficulty. We know that Paul and John Mark later reconciled. And in 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul actually asks for them for him to come visit and specifically says, I have great use for him. But also in 1 Peter, we know that then later in, in the chronolo chronology of John Mark's life, we know that Mark spent a lot of time with Peter. He was considered a disciple of Peter. And in 1 Peter 5.3, 
we read, She who is at Babylon, speaking of the church at Rome, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Mark, my son, has a ring to it. But Peter called John Mark his son. And not in a physical sense, but in the faith, because they had spent so much time together, and Peter had invested in him, and John Mark had heard Peter's preaching, and heard him recount the story of the Savior. And so John Mark then proceeded to write that down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Just by way of application, isn't it amazing that God can use anyone? God used John Mark, who had failure in ministry, to write the first gospel of the Savior. And I think so many times we fail at things and we fail at ministry or we look at our lives and we stop being used by God because we think we're done. We are never done with Christ. We are never done with God. And we see John Mark faithfully being restored to ministry and being used by God. And the same is true of us. John Mark gets much of his information from the Apostle Peter. Um, And so the Gospel of Mark is often from Peter's point of view. You'll see that the account is especially vivid when, when Peter is on the scene because he's getting firsthand information. It presents the weaknesses of Peter, but it omits a lot of the praiseworthy items about Peter. And if we think about Peter's life and some of the things he went through and some of the failures he went through, we see a man that has been humbled by God and and created ready for service by God. We see that in in the epistles of 1 and 2 Peter, but we see that also oozing out of Mark. But if you think about what Peter was like, Peter was a man of action, wasn't he? He was a man that rushed into things. He was a man that would make bold statements. He was the man that identified Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, because he was willing to step up. And Mark has that kind of personality, the Gospel of Mark. It's enthusiastic. It's quick. It tells a story probably much like Peter would have. Yes, the language has some rough edges in the, in the original Greek. But that was pretty much Peter. And so we see a reflection of thoughts written by John Mark under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but guided by one of the apostles that was in Christ's inner circle. Date Mark was written. Get through a couple of these other details. Probably somewhere between 55 and 68 A.D., I know that's a long range. We actually don't know for sure again. It depends on on the order of the Gospels that we think it was written in and and some really sketchy clues that we're not sure about. But we do know that Peter was in Rome in the the early to mid-50s and probably John Mark was with him there. In fact, Eusebius, one of the early church fathers, writes that Peter was a mighty preacher in Rome during that time and John Mark was one of his followers, possibly even his interpreter. But through this time, we're seeing a lot of heavy persecution of the church, especially right about the middle, about 64 A.D. And I don't know whether whether you remember history, but Nero was already on the scene in 64 A.D., and much of Rome burned. 
to the ground. Actually, 10 of the 14 areas of Rome burned to the ground. And the rumor that was going around that was probably true was that Nero started the fires for urban renewal purposes, also known as expansion of his grounds. And he probably started those fires, but he realized that that was not the impression that would work well with his people. And so he came out, and and at first he tried a whole system of giving food and giving handouts to try to win the people back, but the rumors persisted. And so in in AD 64, he he realized he needed a scapegoat. He needed a scapegoat. And so there was this group of people that believed in Christ called Christians. And he blamed the fires on the Christians and proceeded to go on a rampage of persecution on the Christian church. Not just for that reason, but that became his excuse to tear at the church of Christ and to brutally murder and brutally torture members of the church. And so that was all around the time that Mark was probably written. And as we study it, we'll see things in Mark that would be very comforting to someone that is going through trials, to someone that is going through persecution. So the date, 55 to 68 A.D., somewhere in there. Um, Matthew and Mark were probably written after Mark. And I, I, there's, there's different theories on this, but I would hold that Mark was written first, and then Matthew and Luke were written after that, with John being a much later date than that. And there's all kinds of, of theories that we could get into, but we're not going to this morning, about was there a document called Q that they all relied on, and how did all this work? But suffice it to say that they all pretty much knew each other. And Christian circles were small circles, and the the teachings of Christ were transmitted by oral tradition and and their culture memorized so well that you could transmit orally stories and have them be accurate. And so they are aware of each other and some of the information is the same. I I, I was reading one author that says, well, we have to really suspect the, the first three Gospels, which are called the Synoptic Gospels, we have to really suspect them because they're so similar. I'm thinking, well, if the stories are true, wouldn't you want them to be similar? And and another author finally brought that up and said, well, actually, we would be much more concerned if they all had a very different story of Jesus, wouldn't we? And so it's not a problem that they have the same story of Jesus. In fact, it's a confirmation of the truth of his life. Finally, the original audience, Mark was writing from Rome to Gentiles in Rome. And so we just don't see a lot of Jewish references. The ones that he does use, he explains. When he uses Aramaic words, a language that the Jews would have understood, he he translates them. Because this is written for Gentiles that don't know Christ in Rome as an evangelism track. This is Mark's track. Saying, read this. This is who Christ was. This is why he came. Believe on him. Believe on him. The setting we've already talked about with, with what was going on with Nero and the church. and Last section under, under when and understanding some of the vitals of Mark is just understanding the four Gospels. And I mentioned the synoptics, which literally means to see together. Sin meaning together, S-Y-N, and then optics, to see. 
And so it's to see them together. And, and so Matthew, Mark, and Luke have many similarities. In fact, 90% of Mark's material you can find again in Matthew or Luke. And that doesn't mean Mark's not necessary, but they each are coming from their own perspective. And they each have a different focus, guided by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Matthew focuses on Christ as king, and he's writing to Jews. So you see so many Old Testament references as he's proving to them that this is their king. Luke is writing about the Son of Man, a perfect man, the Messiah and the Lord. John is writing about the Son of God. The Son of God, that Jesus is God. And so we see the doctrine of of the deity of Christ and we see a wonderful Christology that comes out of the Gospel of John. But Mark is focusing on Christ as servant and Savior. The perfect servant. The perfect servant. So what are the themes? What are the themes in Mark? And I share these because as we read the the accounts of the life of Christ, Mark has been very intentional in weaving these themes throughout. And if we know to look for them, we'll see them. If we don't, then we can miss them and they're just a bunch of Sunday school stories. The first theme is that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God and has authority over all things. Out of our title, this is the section that the words God chose. When God chose. And as we we study Mark, we're going to find, especially in the first half of Mark, he keeps hitting the authority of Christ over and over and over again. And he says he has authority over the elements. He has authority over creation. He has authority over the demonic. He has authority over sin. And and Mark is pounding in that this, this perfect man is more than a man, and He is God Almighty in human flesh. We saw that in verse 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In Mark, we have 20 miracle accounts, more than any other Gospel, even though it's the shortest. Because Mark is intentionally showing that God is all-powerful. In the title, I I chose the words, God chose. When God chose sandals. To refer to Jesus being God and the deity of Christ. And the word chose referring to His authority. That this was His decision. It wasn't something He was duped into. But He chose to come to earth and to humble Himself. And to be, be found in fashion of man to die on the cross. And so we see the incarnation by His choice out of Philippians 2, 5-11. through 11. But also when we think of the authority of Christ, that theme is powerful to a people that are going through struggles. That theme would resonate with a people where Nero is starting to kill off some of the people they know and, and some of the members Because it's a reminder to come back to, no, God hasn't lost control. God is still the authority. God is still over Nero. And for a time, it may look like evil is winning, but evil is not winning. And so we see accounts like in chapter 4, verse 40, with the ocean where Jesus said, He said to them, why 
are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Have you still no faith? And our response then to this theme in Mark is is faith or fear. Faith or fear. We're called to trust. And when we go through circumstances that we don't understand, when we, when we go through times where we wonder if God even knows what is going on, we can come back to the authority of Christ, to the power of God Almighty in Jesus Christ our Savior, and we can trust. Because our focus now is on God and not our circumstances. And so as we read the faith accounts, and there's a whole section of faith accounts, and as we read these stories of Jesus' authority, may it build our faith. And may we believe that He is God and that He has authority over all things and get our eyes off the things that worry us so deeply. First theme is Jesus is the Son of God. The second theme is Jesus is a servant and is fully human. Jesus is a servant and is fully human. He takes on the title Son of Man, which affirms His humanity. It affirms that that He is a servant to humanity. And out of our title, the word sandals represents His servanthood. His humanity. He didn't come as a king. He didn't come in a palace. He came in sandals. Next week, as we look at the first section of Mark, we'll look at verse 7, where John the Baptist is talking about Christ, and he says, One who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not worthy to untie the straps of his sandals. And we'll talk about what that means next week, but what an imagery of the divine authority in the human servant flesh. I am not unworthy to untie his sandals. In the key verse that we read, Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the word for servant is a word that, that means that a man is not at his own disposal. He is his master's purchased property completely at the whim of the master. He's bought to serve the master's needs. He's at the beck and call of his master. The only business the slave is to be about is the master's business. And that's the imagery used of Christ. It's fascinating to me that as I was reading and as I was studying and even looking for songs for this morning and looking at hymns and worship songs, very rarely is the topic of Christ's servanthood addressed. Little bits here and there, but, but in worship, we tend to worship grand themes, don't we? The majesty of God, the holiness of God, the might of God, the love of God, His incredible work on the cross, which is the ultimate act of servanthood. But when it came to praising Christ for His servanthood, there wasn't a lot. And this is just my own conjecture, but I wonder if that's because we don't really resonate with that part of Christ. We don't really like that part. And we like it for Him serving us, but if you go to where we have to imitate Him, oh no. But in Mark, we're going to go there. Because that's the image of Christ that we see. That of a servant 
that of a slave. And we see in Christ a willingness, willingness to selflessly help others first, even when he's tired, even when he's exhausted, even when he's done for the day. We see a willingness to meet each other's practical needs. We see a willingness to give sacrificially, even to give his life. For those of you Princess Bride fans, as you wish. And that's Christ's attitude towards his master. Incidentally, in, in, the, in the movie, that is how the boy won the heart of the girl, isn't it? And that is how Christ woos us and wins our heart by being a servant. I was online this week on a website ordering some things and came up with a little box that said, thank you for choosing sermonview.com. My name is Lori. How may I serve you? I thought, wow, that's a really interesting way of putting it. But it gets to to the point that we are called to serve. We're called to serve. And when we come together as a community and we come together as a body, we, we can look each other in the eye and say, how can I serve you? How can I serve you? Because in doing so, we imitate our Lord and Savior. When God chose sandals, the next few words, a walk with our servant Savior. And the third theme that we see in Mark is a call to discipleship. A call to discipleship, not easy believism. And we'll see that Christ keeps bringing up His servanthood and He keeps bringing up, and you guys are supposed to copy me. And you guys are supposed to do this. And His call to discipleship is repeated over and over and we'll look at some of the connections because He, he, he repeats it. And He calls again and again, but it's always with the concept of denying ourselves and the difficulty of discipleship. In Mark 8, 34 and 35, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. See, cross-bearing is a part of walking with him. And the words I chose was a walk with our Savior. To denote discipleship. That we are to walk life with him. We are to walk in his steps. We are to imitate him. In this series isn't about head knowledge. It's about knowing our Savior. It's about our relationship with Him. The other evening, Mark and I just took a walk around the neighborhood, holding hands, talking about some things we needed to talk about. It was a time for me to mentor, a time for me to instruct, away, away from some of the other distractions. And that's what God calls us to in the Gospel of Mark, to walk with our Savior and get away from the distractions and follow. And finally, the last theme, when God chose sandals, a walk with our servant Savior. We see the theme of that Christ is our Savior. He came to give His life to save the ultimate act of servanthood. It's interesting, in the, in the Gospel of Mark, the first eight chapters to about the middle of, of chapter 8, are all about his ministry in Galilee and his authority and, and how he's, he's spending that time. And then the second half of the book is all about the road to Jerusalem and the Passion Week. 
Some have said that the, the first part is really just a long introduction to his point. That Christ is the Savior of our sins. And may we not forget that as we read Mark. That the focus is the work of Christ on the cross. And our response is a call to accept. A call to accept. When Jesus looked at Peter and said, but who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ. I pray that through the Gospel of Mark, you'll have that moment where Jesus will say to you, but who do you say that I am? And if you don't know him, that you will follow him with your life. Just by way of ending, some practical advice. How do we keep Mark from becoming a series of Sunday school stories? Here's the thing. Most of the stories in Mark you've heard. You've heard the feeding of the 5,000. You've heard the walking on water. You've heard his death, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. So how do we, make, how, how do we keep that from being, oh, that's just a, a set of Sunday school stories? And four points, four questions that I would encourage you to ask. The first is, how does this help me spend time with Jesus? How does this help me walk with Jesus? And specifically, through this story, how can I know Jesus better? Not about Him, but how can I know Him better? To intimately know His attitude as a servant? To understand Him better when He says, not my will? See, Mark, even though it's a, a, the gospel of action, it also includes more emotional language about Jesus than any other gospel. It includes more for us to get to know who he was than any other gospel. When you spend time with someone, you start to, to take on their characteristics, don't you? Spouses start to do that. Children with their parents. Pet owners and pets. Just think about it. First question, how does this story that I know help me spend time with Jesus? Second question, How does Christ want to disciple me? One of the themes is a call to discipleship, and and we see him instructing his disciples and taking these events and using them specifically to teach his disciples how to walk with God. So how does Christ want to disciple me through this story? What lesson is Jesus communicating that I need to apply to my life? How will the truths change how I live? And we're going to see teaching on a number of subjects, including money and divorce and relationships and all these practical subjects that that Jesus is working through. But how can we apply them? Third, what is God doing to accomplish His plan of redemption for His glory? What is God doing to accomplish His plan of redemption for His glory? You may say, well, what, what do you mean by that? See the big picture. The big picture is that God is working to redeem creation to himself. So how does this story fit in that? These are not just an isolated set of stories. And as we begin to see that, we begin to give glory to God, we begin to know God. And finally, four, how does this story connect to the one before and after? And this is where I think it's just really cool to go through the Gospels. And and sometimes we're going to take two stories at a time. Because the, the evangelist Mark has put them together on purpose. And by connecting them, we see truths that we don't when we look at them alone. 
an encounter with the servant Savior will transform our lives into servant worshipers. As we go through when God wore sandals or chose sandals, I pray that it's just that encounter and that we as a church become servant worshipers that follow our Lord, recognize His authority, that are disciples, and that completely worship Him for His work on the cross. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, I pray that You would bless our time as we study Your life. Lord, may it be transforming. Not just a set of stories, but a relationship with the Creator of the universe who stooped to become a servant. Lord, challenge us with this series. Comfort us with Your authority. Step on our toes to be servants, to be like You. Lord, we ask for You to work in our church. In your name.